Well, good evening. We are closing in, right? Two days left of reading, if you're caught up with reading. If not, we have maybe a few more days of reading, all right? Um, at the end tonight, I'll tell you, remind me, and I'll tell you where we're going to go from here after the first of the year and uh, some suggestions about how to continue what you've been doing, okay? And so uh, we'll be doing that uh, in a little bit. Let me also set some ground rules for tonight. We are not going to cover everything we've read over the last, whatever, three years since we met. or when It's been three weeks, right? We hadn't been here in three weeks. Uh, last week was scheduled to not be here because of Christmas holidays. The week before that, Alan apparently has a special connection with God and requested that he not have to answer questions about Revelation. And so he, uh, the snow and the rain was threatened and came at some point, right? When I got out to my car in Louisville, Kentucky on Thursday to leave, there was an inch of ice on my car all the way around. Towed the car. So I don't think it did that here, but that's okay. So we haven't been here. So we're not going to cover everything. We've got two weeks. We've got tonight. And we've got next week. So we're going to cover half of the, or roughly half of the Old Testament minor prophets that we've read. And we're going to cover the first 11 or so chapters of Revelation. Okay? And then save the rest for next week. Okay? Is that all right with everybody? If not, it's too bad. All right, let's talk about the Old Testament. Let's talk about uh, the minor prophets. I'll tell you where we're going to center uh, tonight. We're going to center in uh, those minor prophets from Amos through Nahum. That's five, and that gives us five more next week. Amos through Nahum. We can talk first about just general impressions, and then we'll answer specific questions if you've got them. What are some general impressions from these minor prophets? Things you noticed or didn't notice or questioned in general. You don't get a lot of background. Um, I mean, you get... You can take some things and look at them, but but you don't get a whole lot of this is as and you don't feel like you get to know them. I mean, several of these we read in one day, right? Uh, because they were two, three chapters, and you read the whole thing in a day, and so it does feel almost fleeting. Especially if you uh, miss a day or two, and you've got to go back and read three in a day or something. I mean, it can seem fleeting, so you don't get to know them that well. A lot of gloom and doom. If you notice the general. Um, except for Obadiah, which is just really mad. The general idea is the first two-thirds of the book is gloom and doom, and then there's almost always a chapter of hope, restoration, of renewal of some kind, right? Let's talk about Amos for a minute. Who was Amos? What was his profession? What? He is not a typical prophet. Remember that confrontation when the king gets upset about him and he says I am not a prophet I am just a farmer shepherd I'm just a man of the country I'm a good old boy is what he would say uh, I'm just this guy that God's given me this message now he's pretty firm in his message right I told you one of my one of the most interesting um, um, phrases in all of scripture is when he calls out the women in his area and he calls them you fat cows of Bashan right uh, I, I preached a sermon on that several years ago that someone still remembers. I don't remember what I preached, but they talk to me sometimes about my fat cows of Bashan sermon. But here's Amos's big deal. 
Amos's big deal is that there were people all around them that were hungry and starving and needed things, and yet they are living a life of luxury. Okay? Now, what Amos would not say is that on a governmental level that the government should be taking care of people. But what he would say is, on a spiritual level, the people of God ought to be taking care of people in need. Uh, he would say that it is our responsibility and that when we live in our nice houses and there are people who have not, we need to make sure that our heart is in the right place. Now, if it was just Amos that said that, we could say, well, that was Amos's pet issue. But the truth is that is Scripture over and over again. Um, there's been a, a renewed emphasis in really the generation behind me. I'm at the tail end of what they call Generation X. But in the millennial generation, there's been a reemphasis on doing stuff, on reaching out, helping the poor, um, helping people that are in need. There is a renewed emphasis, whether you, you we realize it or not, as a congregation here at Billetsville, that across kind of American Christianity and our young people, there is a renewed uh, passion for adoption. Uh, for people that are in need. Uh, Stephen Kathy's uh, son, Stephen, many of you know Stephen. Stephen, is, is he he's still in Ethiopia? They're back. Got back last night. But they went to Ethiopia. They're adopting twin boys from Ethiopia. They had to go through court dates, and then they're going back. And that's a passion of the next generation. And part of that comes from a biblical understanding of the need to help people that are in need. And so that's Amos's big thing. Now, I think that it's interesting in a country that builds itself around gaining wealth, that it's easy. I mean, that's what the American dream is today. Whatever it once was, it's today it's getting money. It's easy to end up like the cows of Bashan who are sunning themselves and enjoying life, even in tough economic times. And we're not concerned about those that are in need. So I think Amos is a very important prophet. Well, he would say, you know, we read in there, and the pro- one of the Proverbs we read, and I'm not sure where it all fell, there was that interesting proverb where it says, Lord, don't give me more than I need, lest I forget you. Or less than I need, lest I blame you. Give me just what I need. And there would definitely got this understanding that for the Israelites, for the people of Amos's day, their wealth, had led them to spiritual poverty. Their physical wealth had led to spiritual poverty. And that, that's a recurrent theme in Scripture, that when you become wealthy, and by all standards worldwide, we all are wealthy. When you become wealthy, then it's easy to forget God in the midst of that. What about those other prophets and um Obadiah or Jonah or Micah, Nahum, any of those? Say that against Amos what, Wayne? 2-7. Okay, I was in 1-7 for some reason. 3-7. We, we have to remember the context here. And the context here is that God, Amos is laying out the reasons that, he, that God's going to punish Israel. And he says, uh, I've known you better, so I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. I, I, I've taken you as my own. Um, can can he, there's this famous line that comes people will quote completely out of context. Can two walk together except they agree? 
where they're going. He says all that in there. So you haven't walked with me. You haven't kept up your end of the bargain. And so he says, Indeed, the Lord does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. What he's saying there in this particular thing is that God has given them ample warning. He's revealed to them what is going to happen if they don't respond. And he's done that through the prophets, and yet they have continually tried to hush the prophets, not listen to the prophets. They haven't taken heed. And so God's, what Amos is basically saying is, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you. You've been warned. God does nothing without revealing what he's going to do to the prophets. Now, today, we live in a little different age. And so we we live on the New Testament side of that, where God has given ultimate revelation in his son, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus has revealed and what Scripture teaches us, when we are errant in the way that we're living, if we continue in that, we should not be surprised if the consequences of our sin catches up with us. All right, what about the other prophets there, those other minor prophets we kind of breeze through? Obadiah, who's, I mentioned he's, he's, not, he's kind of upset. Obadiah is one of those prophets that doesn't really have any hope. It's all against Edom. There is a future blessing for Israel at the end. But what he basically says is Edom should have listened. You remember the story of Edom, Esau, and that they're kind of part of Israel, but kind of stepbrother, half-brother kind of deal, and they should have been watching. Okay. Jonah, interesting about Jonah is of all of the prophets, he's one of the hardest to date exactly because it doesn't give us a lot of that. It just kind of tells us what's going on. Um I mean, you know the story of Jonah, right? I mean, uh, the thing that is always kind of, um, if there were only three chapters of Jonah, it would be a really exciting book. That fourth chapter is convicting. Um, There's that great image of God causing the plant to come up and giving some shade, and then the plant withers, and Jonah gets mad. God says, you don't care about those hundreds of thousands of people. You care about a plant. Um, so movies have been made about Jonah. Modern stories have kind of been based on things like Jonah. So it's a, even things like Finding Nemo where fish end up in the belly of a whale have been based on Jonah. But it's always a good story to read. There's an interesting thing happening. I don't know whether you know this or not, but, but um, Nineveh, the ruins of Nineveh, if I'm correct, are in northern Iraq. And there are a lot of people in northern Iraq who are now... You've heard a lot on the news about the Kurds, the Kurdish people. Most of them are believers. And they're still being persecuted heavily today, even as we've gone in and helped reestablish the government. The Kurdish refugees are really being persecuted. There are some of them that trace their lineage all the way back to Nineveh. And they will even... I, I was having a conversation at Christmas with my brother-in-law who was out in Los Angeles and ended up talking with some people that traced their lineage back to these Ninevites in the city of Nineveh. So, kind of interesting. Anything in Jonah that you want to talk about or that you noticed? All right, what about Micah or Nahum? Okay, go, Cliff, on Jonah. Jonah's been called the greatest missionary book in the Bible outside of the book of Acts. Because it shows that God, this is before Jesus. This is when the Israelites thought they had a monopoly on who God is and was. 
And he says, no, there's some people over there I want you to go share me with. Um, And if we're honest with ourselves, it reveals more about our hearts as a missionary, as we're all called to be, than we want it to reveal about Jonah and his, well, God, I didn't want to share the message. Well, why not? Well, because they're heathens and they needed to be punished. And I, I want them punished. And I knew if they accepted you, you would save them. And now maybe we may not verbalize that, but our actions show that we don't care as much about lost people as maybe we should. All right, anything else in these these minor prophets, Micah, Nahum, Jonah, Obadiah, Amos, before we go to what you all want to talk about? Not reading Revelation, right. And this is a good segue to Revelation. Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. And if... Now, I'm not... I'm not suggesting that you remember all that we've read in the Old Testament. But reading Revelation, having read the entire Old Testament almost, there were moments when suddenly you were like, wait a minute, we've read that. Or that sounds like what Daniel said. Or that sounds like something we read in Ezekiel. Or that, you know, I mean, the four living creatures, right? Ezekiel chapter 1. I mean, there's the Son of Man, that description is in Ezekiel and Daniel. I mean, there are those things that you suddenly see. In fact, uh, I found this in a book. There are 404 verses in Revelation. 285 direct citations of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Now, here's the problem. They didn't have to footnote back then. John didn't have to say, as it says in Ezekiel chapter 1. But here's the amazing thing. There are over, now how many verses? Did I say 404. If you put those citations and then what they call allusions, which are just references to things talked about in the Old Testament, when you put those two together in the book of Revelation and the 404 verses, there are 550 Old Testament allusions. Not illusions with an I, allusions, right? References to the Old Testament. So more than one per verse. It refers back to the Old Testament. Now, we'll talk about why that is in a minute. But we're going to talk about the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Here's what I want to ask you before we do that, without asking specific questions. What, as you've read through almost, if you're up to date, you've got a couple more chapters of Revelation. What has struck you about reading through the book of Revelation this time? What big picture thing is there? Yes, Wayne. Yeah. Well, and there's that part in there that I, for some reason, I, I forget until I read it again, where John sees something and he says, I went to write it down. And the angel said, oh, no, no, don't write that down. Don't let them know that. That's just for you. Uh, to kind of go to that point, I, I have a set of commentaries in my office called the Word Biblical Commentary. And it's kind of the, it, it goes word by word in the Greek or the Hebrew and gives you all the, everything you want. And I, I use it some. I don't use it as much as my seminary professors would like me to use it. Uh, but I use it some. It's just hard to get through sometimes. This is the commentary on Revelation. I did not read this in preparation for tonight. It is 12 pages. I mean 12 pages, 1,200. It's 12 pages. They're big pages. 1,200 pages on the book of Revelation. Now, this is Revelation 1 through 5. And I'll tell you that more than 1,200 pages because that's where page 1 begins. 
That's all previous stuff. 200 pages of previous stuff. So it's 1,400 pages of stuff. All right? So that's because he wants to give you every view of what's going on. Okay? So anybody wants to read this over the weekend, or you'd like to take this home, read it, I'll loan it out to you for uh, a $500 down payment. No, we can loan it out to you. So it, it is... It is a book that is intentionally not going to reveal everything, right? What else? What other big picture or big idea kind of things do you see there? Yeah, there's a plan in place that we are a part of. Wherever we are on that spectrum and whatever it means when it comes, right? Yeah, remind you of the... This, especially from the 50s and 60s, right? I mean, some of those uh, coming out of the sea and, and those kind of things, those descriptions. Let me ask you a question. How many of you went on, I mean, a couple, about three weeks ago I told you to go online and listen to Greg Thornberry. How many of you did that? Okay, good. Then I can share some of this stuff. And only three of you know. What, what did you think, Charles? What did y'all think? Did y'all listen to it together or separately? Or Well, and I think that Part of you have to know Greg a little bit. I, I don't think that he meant that it was a game. I think that, but I think Scripture teaches that when somebody sets themselves up as God, God humbles them in the way that they set themselves up. Greg Thornberry, and, and if you talk to Greg, he says in there, and he doesn't get a chance to do this. He he teaches it from a very historical perspective, and then says, "If we need to do a second part where I can teach you what it means later." But it does bring to light some things that we don't normally think about. The Emperor Domitian was the first emperor who called himself the Lord God. Okay? And he was the emperor when John wrote this. Now, people say, well, why was John exiled? John was the only original apostle who wasn't martyred for his faith. Um, Judas hung himself, but the rest of them were martyred for their faith except for John. And John was on the island of Patmos. Well, people think, well, that's just what happened. They sent him on a vacation resort over to Patmos. But history holds that they tried to kill John. Uh, there's stories from the ancient church fathers that they actually tried to put him in a vat of hot oil in the Roman Colosseum, and he survived. And so the question is, if you're Emperor Domitian and you've got this guy telling people not to bow down to you, what do you do to a guy you can't kill? Well, you exile him on an island. And the Emperor Domitian had set up in Ephesus, from John, which is the place that John helped teach from, a center to worship the Emperor Domitian. And in his temple, he had this monstrosity of a statue that he had people inside of to make it come to life. Making fire come out of his eyes. Making swords come out of places. White-haired. Does that sound familiar? It's almost, from the history books, it sounds very similar to the description of Jesus that's happened in Revelation. What Greg says in his teaching, and I encourage you to go, it's on our website, you go to online sermons and then just... There's a place you can do sword options, sort to Greg Thornberry as speaker. Or just look through it until you see 666 on there and, and listen to it. 
he says that a lot of what Revelation is is that it's one of the greatest political or anti-political statements in the history of the world. That there was this man named Domitian telling the Christians that they didn't bow down and worship him. They weren't going to have anything. They're going to be killed. And John says he's not in control. Even to the point that the Emperor Domitian, when he would come to Ephesus, the, the ships would come right up to the edge, and he would emerge out of the sea with scrolls in his hand. And he would open the scrolls and say, To the governor of Smyrna, I have these things that you're doing well, and I have these things that you're doing wrong. To the governor of Laodicea, for the emperor Domitian, you're doing this way. He does all of these things, and what it's not that, that Greg is suggesting that John is just copying it. What he's saying is John is writing this political protest letter saying, Domitian is not king. Jesus is king. And eventually Domitian doesn't last, right? Domitian, it's, there's an interesting thing that Greg shares in there that uh, Domitian couldn't have children. And when you call yourself the Lord God and you can't have children, that's a little bit of a problem. So he had a couple in his house that had children for him. And they became believers. And history holds that one of them became the earliest church father, a guy named Clement. And that he became a writer. So you have all these things. Now, I don't say all that to suggest that that's what all Revelation means. I don't believe that. But I do believe that the book of Revelation had significant meaning for the people to whom it was written. That John isn't writing this saying, someday in the year 2011, there are going to be some people that will understand this. Or I guess we could say, in the year 2020, whenever somebody finally understands it, right? And so, we don't need to have necessarily get caught. And part of the reason, we, part of the reason Wayne, it's so hard for scholars to get their heads around it, is because a lot of his references are 2,000 years old. And we don't think of them immediately. So, all right, what questions do you have? First 11 chapters, let's do that, okay? Book of Revelation. Where does the name come from? Why don't we call it Revelation? Why don't we call it the Revelation and not Revelations? It's apocalyptic literature, right? Um, the actual Greek is that that first line that talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, it says the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, apocalypse just means uncovering. It doesn't Apocalypse, we've come to mean into the world kind of stuff. Apocalypse just means uncovering. And so what we see is the word revelation or apocalypse comes from the first verse in the first chapter of the book. And what is it the apocalypse of? Does it say it's the revelation of how the world will end? Is that what it says? What does it say? It's the revelation of what? Jesus. This is Jesus' revelation. This is who he is and how he will accomplish his will. There, there, that's one of those that has different interpretations. There, some have even translated that the sevenfold spirit. Number seven there means completion, and so it would be the completion of the spirit. Um, there are some that just says that's a symbolic nature, seven spirits. Not that there are actually seven ghost-like figures hovering around the throne. Wayne? 
I didn't read it. Um, here's the thing about the, the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Um, in a generalized way, the book of Revelation, there is lots of symbolism and there's lots of facts. And what you have to interpret is what you think is symbol and what you think is fact. And everybody makes those differences in the book. They just think they're right about those differences they make. I think it's obvious that the 144,000 shows the number of completion, um, that all that will be in heaven will be in heaven according to the tribes, Jewish, Gentile, all that. It goes back to the 12 tribes were God's chosen people, and that um, thousands of them together would be God's ultimate chosen people. And so I don't think there is... I saw... Uh, on the news today that Disneyland had to stop people from coming in the park yesterday because they had too many people there. So they they counted, and when they got to a certain number, I'm sorry, we're closing the gates. I don't think St. Peter's got a counter in heaven. Well, we're at 139,924. We only got 76 more left to let in. And they've got to be 12 from the tribe of Joseph and 6 from Manasseh. I mean, that's... Not what's there. I think it's a symbolic number of completion. Um, that's what I think. As good as, and here's the thing about Revelation: you, we don't know. It'll be as God wants it to be. It'll work out in the end. What else? I know some of you got questions. You told me you had questions. Now he he would have been exiled to Patmos, and Patmos was a barren area. If you go to Patmos today, by the way, um, I've heard Greg and some others mention this. It's a luscious place. They've got irrigation. They used to not have irrigation. It was a desert-like place, barren. People could go to and from. John just could not go to and from. So it was kind of an alcatraz, if you will. Now, he wasn't in literally in stocks. He wasn't in a, a building. But people could come and visit or see, or there would be ways that he could get letters back. And so... He's writing a letter, almost like Paul in Rome, writing letters back to the churches. And one of the things that makes Revelation so difficult is it is a letter to seven churches. I mean, that's what it is. That's what he wrote it. He wrote it initially to seven churches that we now read today on a much bigger scale. Um, we have to realize that when they read this letter, they wouldn't have had 14 commentaries to go to. They would have had none but they wouldn't have needed it. I mean, whatever it meant, they made the quick association. Now, some things they probably went, I don't know what he's talking about that. With that bowl, I don't know what the fifth bowl means. But a lot of it they would go, oh, that's what he's talking about. Does that answer your question, Chris? What verse is that? Let's go back. Yeah. And there's, I mean, John does get off of Patmos, according to church tradition. He comes back, actually, to Ephesus after Domitian's dead and, appears out of the sea proclaiming Christ as Lord. Um, and so, But the, the letter got distributed while he was there. I'm not sure what the word is there, Charles. I'll have to look and see what the original language says there. Thyatira there? Okay. No, the, Jezebel became a name given to... Uh, this is one of those Old Testament allusions. Given to any woman who was teaching wrong doctrine. And specifically in the... Jezebel, remember, was the queen that took her husband Ahab away 
into the Baal worship, which would have been sexual practices and fertility stuff. And so that's a reference back then. It, her name wouldn't have necessarily been Jezebel, but they would have just... I mean, we, and we've had that phrase in Southern life some. She's just a Jezebel. Maybe not today, but people on Facebook aren't saying that. But, you know, you, my grandmother used to say that. You've got to watch out for those Jezebels. Now, there is a very popular theology that says that he is writing about errors of the church. I, and I'm not saying that it cannot have that interpretation. But my interpretation of those are those are specific things going on in those churches at that time like Paul would be writing to Corinth saying, you've got a man, because he mentions that. You've got, uh, I mean, you know, you've got this going on, and it's not good. So. so there would have been a prophet test there leading them astray. The The word there is messenger. Most modern scholars think he's writing to the pastor. So to the pastor of the church at Thyatira, this is what I have for your church. The messenger angel there is a literal translation of the Greek word, which means, which is angel, which means messenger. And the tricky thing in Scripture is when it would say, I sent a messenger down the road to send you some mail, you would say, I sent an angel. And when it would talk about the messenger from God who came to Mary, it would say angel. So it's ambiguous. You have to determine by its usage. Most people think that's not the spirit, that's the messenger for that church or the pastor for that church. And he eats it, yeah. No, no, you know, John doesn't give a lot of detail there other than that he's supposed to tell to the nation. There are those that think that it's simply what we have, it's revelation, that, that it was the words that were to be gone in here, that he was understanding that, or that it was a part of this book, that, oh, by the way, include this part in there. And so it was sweet and it was bitter. Um it's definitely not directly related to the seven uh, seals of the scroll. Um, but I mean, most people think that's almost like the allusion to, to Jeremiah, who were to take the scroll, or Ezekiel, take the scroll and eat it. Uh, Jeremiah was to put it into his life. Um, and so it's almost that way, that the, this has become part of who you are, and you are to communicate it. But as far as what exactly was that scroll on it, anything would have to be speculation on that. Most, most scholars also see what they call the seven seals to the seven trumpets to the seven bowls as being what they call telescopic. Okay? And that means that the seven bowls, I'll just make sure I get this in the right order, seven bowls are a part of the seventh trumpet, and the seven trumpets are the seventh seal, part of that. And so you've got the seven seals being broken. And on the seventh seal, part of that seventh seal are the seven trumpets. And a part of the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls. And so it's almost like they fold back into themselves. Does that make sense? So the whole book, you've really got seven trump I mean, seven seals over the whole book. And within those seven seventh seal is seven trumpets and within that are seven am I making any sense at all? Okay. So it's a I, I think of like a, those the kids get those periscopes and you fold them back into themselves 
It's almost like at this end are the seven bowls that go back into the seven trumpets that go back into the seven seals. So it's all part of one big revelation. All right, where's the rapture in Revelation? What's that? Where's the rapture in Revelation? People that believe strongly in the rapture believe it's in Revelation. Anybody know where they think it is besides Alan? We studied up in case y'all asked him this question last time. That's not where the rapture people would say. They say much earlier than that. They, they don't think rapture, premillennial, predispensational, pre-trib rapture. Think it comes real early. They may point to a specific verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I, who is I? John. Looked, and there in heaven was an open door. Which, by the way, this is an interesting little thing here. That door, as it is stated in the original language, seems that it is a perpetually open door. Not that somebody opened it for John. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. People that firmly believe in the rapture think that's the rapture. Now I have I'm not I'm not against the rapture. I, I hope the rapture happens before we finish tonight. All right. And I I firmly believe that it is. I don't think this is where it states that. Who is this about? Who's the I? John, right? They say that when it says come up here, that suddenly the angel switches to say the whole church come up here. And I'll show you what will take place. But I think that's reading into the text what is not naturally there. Now, again, that doesn't say that I don't believe in the rapture. I'm just saying that I don't believe it comes from here. But if you read, like, Left Behind, the the series Left Behind, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, they would say this verse proves the rapture happened before the tribulation ever started. Um, Which is an interesting discussion because it's easy for us as comfortable Americans to hope that we never enter into tribulation. But if you talk to believers in northern parts of Iraq or Uzbekistan or Sudan or Muslim countries, they're already in great tribulation. Now, maybe not what we see at the end of this book. But to think that God always rescues his children before difficulty comes is a difficult concept biblically to prove. So, I think chapter 4 is John being brought up into a spiritual place to be shown what's going to happen. Now, does that mean the church is here for tribulation? I'm not saying that that's what it says here. I don't, I don't know that it gives us full details on that. I can tell you this. I am almost positive that it doesn't give us enough detail to make a huge wall chart on the back that gives every event that's going to happen between now and then. Although I may make one to try to sell it because they sell really well. Other things in there. Al Lindsay does, yeah. John Hagee does. David Jeremiah, who I respect a whole lot. Uh, any of y'all listen to David Jeremiah? David Jeremiah is a great preacher on TV. He, over the last year, that's he's done all that stuff. The coming economic crisis, the coming global crisis, the coming end times crisis. And he's, I really like David Jeremiah, and I wish he would stick to. I mean, he 
He's a great communicator. I wish he wouldn't try to figure out the chart. All right, anything else in Revelation before we head home for tonight? Yeah, yeah. Quick quick answer is I don't know. Um, And what you do see is guys that are so strong every other area of the Bible analyzing what it meant for those people. I mean, if you... They'll look at every book of the Bible and say, we first have to determine what does this mean for the people to whom it was written before we can ever determine what it means for us. And you get to Revelation, and those same guys do it the opposite. And, and I don't know if it's just part of it is I think uh, we, we had this conversation at supper. Part of it is biography determines theology a lot of times, how you grew up, what you learned, who you knew, what you were taught. Um, I, I think it... It's hard to do that kind of research. That kind of research, where Greg Thornberry got all that stuff was not in commentaries. It was in books like what you're reading. It was in history books. It was in the church fathers. That's hard research. You have to like reading hard stuff. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know how, because I've got three or four commentaries, and one or two things happens. Either, like Wayne said, they give you every possibility out there, and never come close to acting like they commit anywhere. Or they just give you their view and act like there's nothing else out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you... And I, and I think with a book like this, that's dangerous and not wise. Uh, I mean, well, worldwide, I would have no clue. It is a lot of human beings. You've got to have a good general to get them all going right and right. The, and that's where a lot of people say, well, what numbers are symbolic here? Um, I mean, we just mentioned, we think the 144,000 are symbolic. If you don't, then you have to account there are only 144,000 people in heaven, at that, in that particular Jewish people specifically in heaven, right? If you don't think that's a symbolic number, then you've got to say 144,000. So if you say, well, that number's symbolic, but the millennium that he's talking about, now that is, that's absolute. That's a 1,000 years. And these troops, that 200 million, that's not generalized or symbolic at all. That's 200. I mean, where do you say this is symbolic and this is literal? And that I think that purposely God doesn't intend for us to know it all, but to just trust. There were two or three times in the book of Revelation, which these are verses that don't get quoted a lot, where John says that's why it is important for believers in Jesus to stand firm in the midst of whatever's going on. It's almost like he gives this whole big illustration, and then he goes, by the way, keep doing what you're doing. Stand firm, because we're going to win. Oh, and back to this crazy stuff about the beast coming out of the sea. But remember to stand firm. All right, here, here's what we're going to do in the weeks ahead. Next week we're going to finish up. If you are not finished or close to it, I mean, we've got two days left, if you can, take this week and finish up, okay? Next week, we're going to celebrate the fact that we did it, okay? We're going to talk about that. Um, Some of you in this room and some people that aren't in this room will have done something that they've wanted to do their entire life and until this year have not done. So we're going to celebrate that. We're going to talk about it. In two weeks on Wednesday nights, we're going to start something called That's Not in the Bible, okay? We've just read the entire Bible. And there are things that you thought were in the Bible or your grandmother told you were in the Bible 
that simply are not there. Okay? For instance, a few years ago, the most popular verse of Scripture in America was, God helps those who help themselves. It's, the problem is it's not a Bible verse, right? Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Great, good saying, not in the Bible. So we're going to do that for three or four weeks. And then starting in February, we're going to resume this question and answer format, but we're going to do it about the big issues of being a believer. And so we're going to spend a month talking about who God is, pulling from what we've read. I'll probably have you read a book, suggest you read a book. Um, when you've done a good job of reading the Bible through the year, the next step I want you to take is to read good books throughout the year. Some of you do that. Some of you um, don't. Um, and if you spent the same amount of time reading the Bible, if you spent that time that you've taken reading the Bible, reading on good books, you could read several good books in a year. And it'll be actually a slower pace than what we've done with the Bible. And so, um, for instance, we'll take a month and talk about who God is. And there'll be a book that I'll suggest that you read along with that. Come prepared to ask questions. We have open dialogue about the nature the character of God. Okay, We'll talk about salvation, sin, humanity, end time stuff. We'll get back into that. We'll do all that throughout the year. So it'll be the same kind of format. Come prepared to ask questions. And then we'll talk about big things about the Bible. If you're wanting to read through the Bible again, you'd like to say, you know what I did it this year, I'd like to do it again, but if I could do it differently, there are a couple of ways to do it. One is just to take your Bible, and there are reading plans out there that tell you you can get online. Or if you would like to know this, you can email me, then I can get them to you. You start with Genesis 1-1, and you just read as the Bible is written. Uh, the second way to read it is called the chronological reading. Uh, the same people that made the one-year Bible, I know mine doesn't look like most of yours, but the one-year Bible, make a one-year chronological Bible. That's the way I'm going to be reading next year. And it takes and puts, I've talked to you about this before, it takes like the Psalms and puts them with David where he is. It takes and puts the Bible in chronological order so you're reading a story. That's an idea. Um, you won't get New Testament every day like you did with this, but it's a little different. I actually saw that there is a online that... Um, one of my professors for Union has is doing a project with Lifeway called um, oh, Read the Bible for Life. Uh, George Guthrie, is uh, he's actually from my hometown. He's a professor at Union. Read the Bible for Life. He has got online now uh, a chronological reading plan that will go along with some stuff he's doing. And so if you would like a chronological reading plan without going to get a Bible, you can... Uh, email me and I'll get you that, or you can just go search for Read the Bible for Life, George Guthrie, and they've got a reading plan up there. Okay? Um, if you can't, for some reason, find it that way, you can Google a guy named Trevin Wax blog, and he just posted about it today on his blog. So, um, so that's my suggestion. Because if you're going to do that, it starts Saturday, right? So, all right. Thank you. Some of you have been here almost every week. we got one more week for the Read the Bible Through. All right? Have a great night. Great week.